0: The Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, associate editor. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI, and is now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit Newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com backslash 2022. Today I'd like to introduce Dan Kaiser, a nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. Dan will be discussing adjusting soil pH to maximize crop production. Welcome to the podcast, Dan.
1: Thank you. Um, Good to be here.
0: To get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, again, my name is Daniel Kaiser. I am a nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. I've been in this position since 2007. And as part of my position, uh, what I do here at the state of Minnesota is I maintain and evaluate the fertilizer recommendations for the majority of the agronomic crops. So... One of the areas that I do work on is liming, albeit a, a smaller source, because uh, funding for lime recommendations isn't what it used to be, but it is an important topic uh, because it does affect quite a few things in the soil.
0: Great. Well, let's go ahead and, and jump right into today's topic. Um, why is proper soil pH one of the most important factors for maximizing crop growth?
1: Well, one thing about pH is that it is a master variable that controls a lot of processes in the soil. It impacts nutrient availability. Um, We know that it's one of the the issues, the key issues, particularly for us for phosphorus um, that we see in Minnesota is that uh, we have pH ranges anywhere from around five up to about eight and a half, and that can significantly impact the availability of nutrients such as phosphorus. But that's only one key component. Uh, The other factor that we tend to see um, that pH impacts some of the biological functions in the soil, uh, namely when it comes down to the microbial populations. Um, For instance, uh, we look at our legume crops that have rhizobium that are important in terms of supplying them with nitrogen. Those rhizobium are significantly impacted for pH. So, When it comes to crops, uh, pH values, you'll see like in our recommendations, we don't recommend the same target pH across all crops. It really depends on how well those crops respond to limestone application. And for instance, alfalfa is one of those crops that likes a little bit higher pH that we recommend targeting a pH of six and a half. When we're dealing with corn and soybeans, we know that they'll do just as well with pHs around 6.0. And you you get the air when I talk to a lot of consultants that a lot of people think that we should be liming for a more neutral pH, say pH 7. But it, just going up that high, really, the only thing that does is it gives us more longevity when it comes to our limestone application where we don't have to go back and reapply as often, I mean, really the crops, uh, six or six and a half is, is really the target values for the majority of the agronomic crops. And most of them are going to be 6.0. And corn, we know that will do, will do okay even down to five. It's, it's really um, some of those legume crops that have the rhizobium that really get a bigger benefit out of um, liming when it comes to uh, yield when we're trying to, to maximize yield within some of these crop production systems.
0: Okay. Other than applying lime, how can growers go about adjusting the soil pH values of their soil?
1: Well, there really is no other way. Um, limestone, if you look at the, the lime equation, it really takes uh, one of two things. It either takes carbonate or it takes an oxide source, so something that's going to consume hydrogens. Because that's really what, when we talk about pH, what it is, it's, it's really the measure of the activity of hydrogen in your soil, which is your acidity, to um, the ratio of that to hydroxides or OH, which if we look at a pH of 7, the activity of hydrogen in the hydroxyls or the OHs will be roughly equal. Below 7, hydrogen becomes more dominant. Above 7, hydroxides become more dominant. So that's really it. We've got to look at situations where we can consume these hydrogens, and that's with a carbonate source. If you look at how that works, is when you apply that, um, the carbonate is gonna, it's gonna react with the hydrogen. You're gonna form water, which is really what you're trying to do by c- to consume the hydrogens and carbon dioxide. So if you look at, a, I mean, we get questions every once in a while, say about a product like gypsum that's calcium sulfate that has absolutely no liming value at all because you're putting. Some people think that putting calcium in the soil. Is, is part of what um, it gives that liming. And it really isn't because again, you have to be able to react with hydrogens, which calcium is positively charged. Hydrogen ions are positively charged and it just doesn't work that way. So you're really looking at um, either like uh, sources that we tend to see calcium carbonate or magnesium carbonate are two, the two dominant sources when it comes to limestone applications. Um, if you're looking at adjusting your pH or increasing your pH from a more acidic state.
0: Why do soils tend to become more acidic over time?
1: There's a couple of processes that can happen here. If you look at, you know, across, let's just say across the U.S., um, if you look at in the, say, the east, the, we'll look at more of the east or the southeast part of the U.S. or the southern part of the U.S., those soils are more acidic because they're more weathered. So we can see this naturally just with soil forming factors. Um, as soils are leached of bases, um, they tend to become more acidic uh, for the majority. If we, we talk about the Midwest, a lot of our issues come from the conversion, particularly of the conversion of nitrogen fertilizers. Uh, we know that um, as nitrogen, if, if you're looking at like an ammonia source of nitrogen, as it's converted to nitrate, which all our soils are going to do rather rapidly, nitrification is always going to occur. That that releases hydrogen, and that um, over time will acidify. The soil, And if you look at other sources of fertilizer, like sulfur fertilizers, ammonium sulfate, and also elemental sulfur, we're seeing more of that being applied, and that can have an acidifying effect as well. So that's really where a lot of it comes from. It's either the leaching of bases, which we don't see a substantial amount. It's really some of those processes of, of nitrification that uh, it's why we see, and even this, the sulfur the application, why we see uh, the soils acidify. In many of our environments, and if you're using manure, the same thing's going to happen um, because it's again you're applying a source that's likely going to have some sort of ammonia or ammonium source, which is going to be nitrified, which is going to release some acidity. So that's it's just what happens when it comes to um, applying nutrients either in an organic or in an inorganic form is that nitrification process is going to generate acidity in your soils.
0: How does the pH level affect the plant's ability to access other nutrients. So, for example, um, at a a pH below six, phosphorus is less available. How does that work exactly?
1: It's some of what I talked about this hydrogen hydroxyl thing when it comes to some of our elements. um, As the pH changes, uh, some of them will, will tend to form, say at high pHs, our metals will form metal hydroxides, which are less soluble. And phosphorus, um, really, it's a function of solubility. And it's a function of the solubility of other products that form covalent bonds with the phosphorus. So, at lower pHs, we know that our metals are more available. And we know that phosphorus is going to be very highly reactive with those metals. And this happens also at high pHs with calcium. But iron and aluminum in the soil will form covalent bonds with the phosphorus, which can effectively tie it up and render it very poorly. It may not necessarily be unavailable, but it'll be very poorly available for the crop. So that's where a lot of that occurs, is really um, some of those reactions that we'll just say phosphorus has with some of the other elements. But if you look at it, there is information online you can look at where they show the stability of certain elements and their availability at certain pH ranges. And really, if we look at, so we'll just say phosphorus, really the most um, available phosphorus is in the soil at around a pH of 6.3. So if you look at other nutrients, they tend to be pretty well available at that point. And that's why when you start looking at Lyme recommendations, we kind of target that point versus um, some other points and going too high again can be a problem because that additional calcium will also bind with the phosphorus. So you can get um, dye and tricalcium phosphate, which has um, varying uh, solubilities and the plant can't take it up. So, That's a lot of the issue that really boils down to when it comes to, we look at individual nutrient availability is how it reacts in the soil in the presence of either high hydrogen or high activity of hydrogen or more acidic environments or situations where we have more hydroxyls um, or more basic environments. There is um, something too, like with soybean and some other crops, it's kind of an interesting thing that can happen with iron um, because one thing that we know that iron is more soluble at lower pHs And some crops are are very poor when it comes to extracting iron out of the soil. And soybean, blueberries, azaleas, those are all um, things that are really affected by iron solubility and availability. So the thing is, um, with with most agronomic crops, it really shouldn't be an issue. Um, Soybean, again, if you have high pH situations, we know that um, if you get over a pH of 7.5, that you can start to see yellowing. And that's what we call iron deficiency chlorosis. And that's just because the, the plant can't effectively take up iron. So there's, there's some things that can, some slight nuances that can happen with certain crop species out there. But, um, you know, a lot of it, is, it's really just this, what solubility of, of a particular nutrient and then what it reacts with in the soil that it really affects its availability. And, and that's really where pH comes into play.
0: How often should growers do soil testing to more effectively manage their soil pH?
1: That's a good loaded question. Um, you know, you'd like them to do it as often as they can, but really with pH, it isn't something that's going to change rapidly. So, you know, say I take a soil sample and I, I don't want to take one in a field for another four years. I mean, really the, the likelihood of that pH is going to appreciably change is going to be low. Uh, you'll get to a point, um, you know, pH if you look at the differences, it's on a log scale. So the acidity, if you go up, say from a pH of five to six, it's a tenfold increase or from five to seven, it's a hundred fold increase that sometimes we can see once you get to a certain point that it might decrease a little bit faster. So if you're soil sampling every, you know, four or five years, you're, you're probably going to be adequate to catch some of your changes in pH, but it really depends because it really depends on the soil. There are soils, what we call buffering capacity. So that's essentially the soil's resistance to change. And uh, we know that sandy soils, for instance, are poorly buffered, that we can see much more wider pH swings in some of those soils um, versus some of our loam or or really our heavier soils that are a little bit more resistant to change. So it's really gonna kind of depend. But again, I think if you're sampling about every four years or so, I mean, certainly be nice for other nutrients to sample every two years to look at that, but um, you don't necessarily need to do that for lime because it shouldn't change that quickly, particularly if you're liming up to around six, six and a half. um, You're not probably going to get into a situation other than maybe an alfalfa where you may have some issues, but again, you're starting at a higher point with alfalfa, so I wouldn't be as concerned. So, you know, four years, you know, probably four or five years, every that would be enough if you're looking at trying to assess your uh, pH change over time.
0: Okay. So, should those soil samples be collected at the same time every four to five years, or is it okay if they're taken during different seasons?
1: Well, it depends on what you're sampling for. I mean, if you're taking a zero to six inch sample and you're analyzing, you know, um, pH and everything, I mean, I would suggest trying to take them at the same point in time, which is important more for potassium than it is for anything else. Your, your pH isn't really going to change all that much. Um We do see in some dry years, um, like what we've had in Minnesota in uh, 2021, that um, we may see a slight uh, swing in our pHs where it might be, you know, a a tenth or two tenths of a point um, lower than it really should be. So it's not going to be that far down, but we just don't see, we really don't see the changes we do that, um, you know, we can see, for instance, with potassium. So that's really the thing. I mean, if you're trying to get more than just a pH value out of this, if you're looking at phosphorus, potassium, some of your micros, I would just suggest trying to sample at the same time, just to give you more comparative results. And it's really going to be a function of, of some of those other things you might be interested in, not necessarily pH.
0: We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI and is now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's NewleafsYm.com backslash 2022. And now back to the podcast. We established that liming is really the, the only way to increase um, the soil pH of, of more acidic type soils. What factors should go into the decision to apply lime?
1: This is I think the million dollar question when it comes to a lot of questions that growers have on economics. Um, that's one of the things with, with lime is it can be expensive, particularly for those that may not have easy access to liming material. So the question then is, is looking at some localized data to just see what the overall benefit is um, economically to some of your crops. I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, if we look at Minnesota, we divide the state, um, it's not roughly in half, but it's, you know, kind of split up the middle where we call area one and area two. Area one, uh, if we look at those soils, uh, we tend to have higher precipitation. If we look at our our subsoil, they tend to be slightly more leached of bases. We don't see as high of a pH uh, versus if we go to central and western Minnesota, we have our calcium carbonate layer um, is closer to the surface. And it's interesting because you can pull a zero to six inch soil sample from a hilltop in some fields and get a a pH of 5.5, but you sample down an additional six to 12 inches you can find a situation where your pH might be seven and a half and eight. And when you have uh, some of those subsoils that are more basic, uh, one of the things that we see in those circumstances that we get to crops like corn and soybean, that um, the economics just aren't consistently there. It's really where you see a bigger advantage is from liming is if you're growing alfalfa in those situations versus you go to area one where we have acidic subsoils that it's, it's more of an advantage just across all crops. So, that's kind of the, the difficulty It's with limestone. It's really a question of availability of the product. And then for us, it's it's some of those subsoil issues where it isn't necessarily a clear-cut answer that if you've got a pH of less than 6 that you apply, particularly in an area where your subsoil still may be somewhat basic. So, that's one of the things, you know, I'm just talking about Minnesota. If you go to some of the neighboring states, it's you can kind of have to look at just um, some data that might be out there in terms of liming, just to give you an idea on what that overall economics is. Because again, it can be a costly input if you're uh, far enough away from your uh, limestone source um, that it, it may not be justified in the end. And uh, you may just be better off um, leaving it until it gets to a certain point where the pH is, just, is, is affecting some of the other nutrients in their availability in the soil.
0: So you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. What soil types require more lime than others?
1: We don't really make a lot of adjustments just based on a soil texture uh, when it comes to lime application. Um, One of the issues, though, with texture is, and I talked about this before, it's a it's a um, something we call buffering capacity, which, again, is the ability of the soil, how well it's buffered against change. That uh, sandy soils, um, it's, it's really easy to overshoot the target. And I've seen this in uh, some situations uh, north of the Twin Cities um, where a lot of those areas, they're looking for a cheap source, so they use water treatment lime. And in the past, um, they aren't really very careful in terms of their application rates. And they were getting to situations where you had um, soil pHs of close to 8.4, 8.5, which is the max you're going to get when, it, when you're... Um, 8.4, 8.5 is kind of where the partial pressure of carbon dioxide is in the soil. That's about the max you're going to get um, for a pH unless you have salinity issues. And uh, what we've, they, what they've had trouble with then is those growers growing soybeans will um, have issues like they have in Western Minnesota with iron chlorosis. So that's one of the things. Um, you know, when you come to the texture, it's really a question of, of, of the buffering capacity. And if you're dealing with like a silt loam, loam, or clay loam soil, something with a little more clay in it, it's a little bit better buffered where you don't, won't have those wide swings in pH. But other than that, I mean, really, we don't recommend adjusting other than, um, factoring in what the historic, uh, the subsoil pH has been, which is kind of our divisor in Minnesota between the area one and area two, because, um, that big difference then just boils down to how much lime you need. And uh, the situation in the western part of the state, it just takes far less lime w- that we recommend applying to increase the pH by a point than what it would in Area 1 or the eastern part of the state.
0: Does the type of lime that's applied, does that make a difference? So, the the smaller particles versus more coarse lime?
1: So, here's one um, thing that you need to, w- when you look at lime, um, certain states are going to have different recommendations and different ways how they handle what they call, what we in Minnesota call the effective neutralizing power. And that's how we sell our limestone or how our limestone is graded in Minnesota. And that's what our recommendations are, are based on. And effective neutralizing power is a function of two things. It's a function of the quality or what we call the, the calcium carbonate equivalent of the lime and uh, the fineness index. So, the the finer the particle size, the more quickly the limestone is going to react. Um, On average, um, I generally um, assume that most ag limes should be around 1,000 pounds of ENP or effective neutralizing power per ton. And when you get a recommendation, your recommendations are going to be in pounds of ENP to apply per acre. And that's one of the things that you know, working with some growers, I, I don't think they realize that if you're getting a recommendation of say 2,000 pounds ENP per acre, that's roughly two ton of ag lime to get you there. But um, you have to know kind of your different states because um, I think Iowa calls what they deem our, our ENP would be their calcium carbonate equivalency, and then I was looking at um, Wisconsin, they've what 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 they call is the neutralizing index, and it's all the same principle essentially. It's Relating again, the um, the material that you have, the purity compared to pure calcium carbonate, and then doing um, some sort of sieve analysis where they look at the fineness of the material and then they come up with a um, just a factor. And it's just like what fertilizer does with um, say MAP or DAP. when you Let's just say DAP, when you buy a ton of material that you're not getting a ton of phosphate, you're getting only 920 pounds of phosphate because it's only 46%. So again, when you're buying limestone, it's important to look at that, um, what we call that effective, or the ENP or some of, the, some of these other states kind of call the same thing when you're looking at buying it. When you're judging amongst materials, that's going to tell you on how effective um, that material is is per ton of material applied.
0: Are there any other practices that can change soil pH over time?
1: Well, the main one I know is is fertilizer. I mean, just again, leaching of bases will have some impact, but that's going to be a very slow process. And that's kind of a, you're talking about eons in in the soil formation. I mean, in terms of anything else, um, there really isn't a lot that I know of in terms of the cropping wise, unless you've got something that's releasing acidity, but all crops are going to somewhat do that to try to solubilize nutrients around the root zone, but it tends to be neutralized relatively quickly. So, it's it's really more of a function of, of some of those fertilizer programs. So again, nitrogen, uh, sulfur are kind of the big two when it comes to acidification. Um, some of the fertilizers, like some of the phosphate fertilizers, will generate some localized acidity around them, particularly MAP when it dissolves. But this isn't anything that's it's really going to be um, it's going to functionally um, quickly change. Your pH. So it's really, um, again, sulfur and and nitrogen are really going to be the key. And and nitrification is really that key process. And that's going to happen in in most soils um, anyway. um, If um, ammonium is formed, um, even with some of the microbial process, you're going to get some nitrification. It's just a lot quicker when you start adding the fertilizer to the mix, just because even manure to the mix, because you're you're supplying another source of uh, nitrifiable N. So there's one other thing that um, when you get a soil test report, you're likely going to get two lime va- or pH values if you had the water pH analyzed on your sample. The first is what we call the water pH. So this is just looking at the pH in the soil solution itself. And if that's at a certain point, uh, typically it's going to trigger um, if it's at six or less or six and a half and less. If you specified you want recommendations for alfalfa, that most labs are going to run what they call the buffer pH, which that buffer pH is, is really a measure of what I talked about before. It's that buffering capacity of the soil and that buffer pH is what's used to generate your lime recommendations. And it's far more accurate to use a buffer uh, pH versus using the water pH to figure out how much you need. So that's one of the things that if the lab doesn't run that, if you, you feel you're in a situation where lime is required, I would request that. Uh, we do get into some weird situations. I've had a few questions this year that um, growers have ran samples for pH and their, their water pH come back at five and a half, but then their buffer comes back at seven and a half and wondering why we get that wide swing and what to do. And really that big of a difference, really what that means is that in order to increase the pH to the target zone you want, you don't need a whole lot of lime. So, if you get in that situation where you'd have a pH, say, of five, five and a half, your buffer is seven and a half, a lot of times we won't give a set recommendation on your report. Generally, I recommend maybe about a ton to two tons of ag lime in that circumstance if you're looking at trying to get to six, six and a half with it. So, there are some weird things that can happen, but again, you need the buffer index, or it's the best thing to have when you're looking at trying to assess how much lime you need. Because if you go onto our website what you'll find is you'll find our recommendations are really solely based around that. There are some tables that you can use um, if you don't have it and if you have um, high organic matter or peat soils um, there's there's slight differences in the recommendations. but generally for mineral soils again I really stress uh, getting the buffer pH value if you're looking at applying limestone because it's going to give you a better indicator of how that soil is going to react when the limestone is applied.
0: Okay. Well, where can our listeners go for more information on soil pH?
1: So we have um, our extension nutrient management website. Um, It's at z.umn.edu backslash nutrient That's all one word. Um, That'll get you to our main page and you'll find there's a section on liming uh, where we have two publications. One talks a little bit about how... The effectiveness of lime is assessed and then the other one talks about crops and um, some of these differences in pH for these target points and some nuances for different soils across the state um, when it comes to uh, liming that if anybody's interested in that's kind of the basis for our recommendations.
0: Fantastic well thanks so much for joining us today Daniel.
1: Well thank you for having me again.
0: Once again I want to thank our sponsor. What if you could do more in 2022, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI, and is now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsym.com 2022. That's newleafsym dot com backslash two zero two two. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies